0: morning, everyone, or actually good evening, everyone. It's not the morning. Welcome back to the living world. Uh, <laughs> I've had a bit of a long day today, so apologies I I'm a bit uh, scrambly on air today. But uh, it is now episode 22 and week nine, which basically means deadline stress, <laughs> at least for me. Uh, I do biology, as you all should have guessed by now. And you know what all of my professors have decided to give me for deadlines lab reports. So yeah, that's what I'm working on this week and next week and the week after. So I'm sure all of you guys are probably in the same boat as me, but if you wanted a break in your endless stream of work this evening, then I'm really happy. You have decided to tune into the living world. And uh, again, we are on episode 22 now. So I hope you all enjoyed uh, episode 21 last week uh, with the University of Minnesota and my awesome interview with Dr. Tiffany Wolfe, because that was a really fun episode for me as I got to interview a scientific professional. Now, I am excited for this week's episode as well, because it is food-based, Primarily. Primarily food-based. So you foodies out there, you'll you'll be very interested in this. Though it's not the use for food that you might expect. So this this week I have chosen to talk about research from uh, Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Now, I haven't been to Singapore, but I have met quite a few people from Singapore and am friends with a few. So uh, those of you uh, native Singaporeans, uh, here's to you all. Anyways, I will get a move on, and I mentioned that this episode uh, tonight is about food, so you you guys will all be very intrigued to hear. This first episode is about the use—actually, this first article— Apologies. This first article is about the use of sunflower pollen as an applicable bioprinting ink. So, woo, very fancy with with sunflowers, you know, because sunflowers are food because you can eat the seeds and you can also make sunflower butter out of sunflowers, which I have tried before because I went to a summer camp in Massachusetts in the U.S., a while back, I think like five or six years ago now, and they didn't have uh, peanuts because they were kosher and gluten-free and catered to everyone's dietary needs. So there was no peanut butter, which was very sad for me because I love peanut butter. And I got to try sun butter for the first time, which is made of sunflowers. So there's the food tie-in right there for uh, this article currently. And I mentioned that this study looked at the use of sunflower pollen as a bioprinting ink. So what is a bioprinting ink? For those of you who have uh, not heard of this in biology or have heard of this actually from maybe um, an engineering class, it's actually a really cool concept. And before I get on with that, though, if... Uh, you guys are interested in all at all in uh, bioprinting. I actually had a similar topic covered on one of my previous episodes. So, this was actually episode two of last year. So, my second ever episode of The Living World. I actually had an article that I talked about. Uh, with research from Imperial College London about 3D printing organs for children. So this is a this is on a somewhat similar topic to that article. And of course, if you guys are curious on printing organs, you can check out that episode of The Living World. So that was a pretty nice one, too. Very, very cool. Very, very inspiring. So as you might have guessed, uh, I'm just going to talk a bit now about a 3D printing and how that relates to bioprinting. So... 3D printing uh, has quite a lot of applications. And I'm specifically going to look at the biomedical applications. though not the ones where you print cells like 3D printing organs. I'm going to look at a slightly different area of 3D printing. So for those of you who haven't heard of 3D printing or have heard of it but are wondering how it came about, 3D printing was actually developed in the 1980s, which I had no idea. I thought, you know, maybe it was the 50s. Nope, nope. Pretty recent, actually. So that's only what, almost forty years ago now. That's crazy. Forty years, like that's such a long time ago, really. And this uh, technology was apparently uh, invented by Charles Hull, according to this one article I read. And he's a, he was apparently an American engineer. So shout out to all the American engineers, including my parents, who got their engineering degrees and then decided to go work in business. But shout out anyways to all you engineers out there who have all your hard work all the time working on engineering projects. Anyways, how does 3D printing work? So, this was designed by Hull in the 1980s, and how 3D printing works on a basic level is there's this printer that's able to create solid objects that follows a design laid out by CAD. So, what is CAD? It's... It's an acronym for computer-aided design. And a quick side note, in high school, I actually took an engineering and fabrication class where I actually had to use this CAD software. So I got to draw these, like, little spheres and all these different shapes in this software. And uh, how CAD works is you design whatever you want. You can design whatever you want, a sphere, a, a box, Even, like, you can download these really advanced files of, like, uh, figurines or whatever. And you send a CAD file over to the 3D printer. And the 3D printer takes that design and then extrudes this uh, substance to later make a 3D model of it. So that's, in my own uh, words, basically, a general definition of 3D printing. And... uh, this was a really, really a big deal in uh, specifically engineering and manufacturing technologies. So I mentioned that 3D printing follows a CAD design. So again, CAD being computer-aided design. And uh, I mentioned that there's an extrusion process of this like substance, basically, to make this 3D design. And how it works in more um, fancy engineering terms, and according to this article I read on the same topic is how they put it is the printer deposits successive layers of this acrylic-based photopolymer. And this apparently is somehow cross-linked with UV light, and it makes a 3D uh, solid object. So in fancy engineering terms, this is called stereolithography. So very fancy term there. But basically, you have this printer. It follows a computer design. It extrudes this basically plastic Because acrylic is pretty much plastic. Because that's what 3D printers use nowadays for the most part, plastic. And then through that process of extrusion, you get this 3D thing. Now, how does 3D printing tie into healthcare? So, I found actually that 3D printing wasn't... It hadn't really uh, been started to be used within the healthcare sector until like the 90s. Because, of course... This tech was invented in the 80s, so they had to, you know, refine it and develop it. But it has a lot of applications within the field of healthcare and biomedical sciences. So, what are some of these applications? Well, you guys have already heard me talk about one, which is printing organs. I.e., Living World Episode 2. Again, if you're curious, super cool. Really cool stuff. And you print, you, you physically print cells. It's, it's pretty insane. Uh, there's also... Um, the the non-biomedical side, which I really want to mention because this is also something I've seen before that looks really cool. Specifically, 3D printing houses. So I don't know uh, how many of you follow like engineering news or whatever, but I've done uh, my fair share of glancing around while I'm perusing you know, the news or whatever. And I've come about a lot of instances and actually a few startup companies that have used 3D printing to actually print a house. So they set up this kind of like crane thing and you have this crane and it stands up and it's got all this concrete and it like extrudes the concrete down and in a little circle, I think, I think. And it makes all these layers. And then you have this house And what's great about it is it saves money, generally, and materials. That's the most important thing, because house building uses a lot of materials. And, of course, if you're not that into construction, there's always the super fun, glitzy 3D printing pen. Uh, There's been plenty of ads for those I've definitely seen. I saw one the other day where they were using a 3D printing pen on, like, one of those... You know, like those little gimmicky Facebook videos, and they were, like, using it to patch up holes in the wall. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know how well that's going to stand, but 3D printing pens are pretty cool also. Though I want to get back, of course, to healthcare, because that's what this article is focused on. Uh, So I mentioned uh, in healthcare, you can use 3D printing to print cells, physically print cells to make organs. You can also use 3D printing to make more uh, other applications, applicable things such as prosthetics so you know if you have a prosthetic or someone you know has a prosthetic most likely it might have been produced from 3d printing where you can get custom prosthetics that fit directly to your body and your limbs which is super cool there's also dental implants and i would know i actually had invisalign uh Back in the good old days of middle school. And sadly it didn't work. But they make custom. uh, These custom retainer molds. That fit over your teeth. So hey 3D printing has got a role there too. In dentistry. In prosthetics. And there's also bioprinting. So I've mentioned this elusive bioprinting a few times. But what is it exactly? What is this bioprinting? So. An example of bioprinting, again, is actually printing of organs, so it's pretty cool. But what makes bioprinting an interesting tech is that, number one, it's a 3D printing tech, of course. But the interesting thing is the material that you use to print in bioprinting is actually like this living kind of ink. So this bio ink, as they call it, uh, can be a variety of different living things. So it it can be actual living cells. It can be biomaterials or active biomolecules that have been uh, isolated and concentrated into this solution to make this bio-ink. And bioprinting is also uh, basically biology's analogy to additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is where you start from nothing and build to something. And then you've got subtractive manufacturing where you start from something and then you go to whatever design you want. So that's uh, bioprinting's relation there. And how this works is uh, pretty similar to typical 3D printing, but it involves a layer-by-layer layer deposition of this bioink to create different 3D structures, including tissues, organs, and a bunch of other things. So pretty interesting. And there's actually three uh, main categories of bioprinting, at least the ones that I found mentioned in this article I read. Uh, So these are extrusion, uh, droplet, or laser-based methods of bioprinting. So extrusion-based bioprinting, it uses either mechanical, uh, pneumatic, or a solenoid dispenser system to deposit this bioink in this basically, like, long form of this, like, filamentous shape. And uh, pneumatic uh, dispensers actually use pressurized air to push out a substance and form these filamentous lines as i saw this word mentioned i was like what the heck is a pneumatic a pneumatic uh dispensing system so looked it up and that was the quick (laughs) google definition for it now next is uh droplet based bioprinting and this relies on the uh generation of these bio ink droplets by use of either thermal acoustic or electrical stimulation and finally one of the uh, cooler sounding ones is laser-based bioprinting because you know you got a laser, so you're already at, you already got the cool points there, man. You you got a laser, you get to go around and print all this stuff out. Pretty cool. And how this works with laser-based bioprinting is that you use the laser power to somehow print out these 3D structures, and it's a whole complicated thing, but the benefit of laser-based bioprinting is it's used sometimes for precise uh, positioning of cells. So if you're printing, say, an organ, uh, you need to be really specific. I mean, even though our organ, our, th- our 3D organ printing tech right now is, is still at its rudimentary stages, you want to be the most spe- specific as you can because g- growing an organ and having an organ just existing is already a complicated alignment of cells. So... That's something to be aware of as well. Laser printing being so specific and also really cool at the same time. Now, I mentioned that bioink uses either living cells or different types of biomolecules. So uh, how do you pick a bioink? There's a lot of different things that this varies upon. But the main characteristics include the ink's uh, rheology. And rheology is... Uh, how well it flows, learned about this in geology, pretty cool, pretty cool. Uh, You also have to factor in the uh, substance's viscosity, its, uh, its own internal chemistry, and if it might form cross-links, and also its biocompatibility. So how compatible is this ink with the biological structure you're intending to form? And there's other applications as well for bioprinting besides just printing organs. So you don't have to just print organs if you want to go into bioprinting. You can, you can print a bunch of different things. You can uh, create uh, scaffolds for delivering drugs. You can study the mechanisms of disease. And you can apply this to personalized medicine. So that's what this study, uh, this specific study looked at. So it was looking at bioprinting but not printing organs. So I mentioned that this study looked at the use of sunflower pollen as a bioprinting ink and now you all have heard me talk a bit now about bioinks so you know a bit more about where that comes from and this, involved, this study involved researchers from of course Nanyang uh, Technological University in Singapore and also a colleague from Chosun University in South Korea. So pretty cool and this study was published uh, back uh, on August 25th of last year so That's actually a while ago now. I forget sometimes it's 2022 now. I just, COVID, man, it's just put me in this constant state of mind thinking it's, I keep thinking it's constantly like November and I'm waiting for Christmas break to come. So (laughs) pretty crazy now. It's already March. It's insane. Now, why did these researchers look at using sunflower pollen as a bio ink? Because you'd think that the bio-inks we have now are good, right? But no, this is a new field. So why did they consider using sunflower pollen? This is because, actually, most commonly used uh, bioprinting inks for scaffolding. So scaffolding can be used for drug delivery, etc. These are actually uh, partly weak, structurally. So you've got this this bioink right but it's it's not the most stable thing it's not it's not existing in its most stable form so that's why these researchers looked at sunflower pollen because if you have a structurally weak bioink to form this bioprinted scaffolding to potentially deliver a drug to somewhere within your body and say this scaffolding doesn't hold up within your own uh physiological conditions within your body or the different pressures that are at play uh say, even outside your body, on, say, your joints. If this scaffold collapses, then this can lead to problems. So problems in drug delivery, problems in support, problems in a bunch of different things. So uh, these researchers, they decided to look to sunflower pollen. Now, what did this study look at specifically? What did these researchers look at specifically within the sunflower pollen to see if it was a good candidate for uh, acting as a bio-ink? So they looked specifically at the mechanical properties of sunflower pollen, and they actually were able to develop this pollen-based kind of hybrid-y bio-ink that uh, could be used to print uh, these bioprinting structures with a better structural integrity than the currently existing bio-inks. And another benefit as to why sunflower pollen is a a really good candidate to study for bioprinting is... It's from sunflowers and it's biodegradable and it's sustainable because think about how many sunflowers are growing right now in the world and think about how many grains of pollen each one of those flowers produces, a ton. So if these researchers, you know, develop this and this is able to become a big thing, maybe you could be buying sunflower pollen on the market one day. And another benefit as well as of sunflower pollen is, of course, there are different types of sunflowers. And different types of sunflowers can have different types of pollen. So this pollen can have different sizes, different shapes, different surface properties. So each individual pollen grain can be different. And these individual properties were what was studied in this specific uh, research article. And it opens up a potentially new class of eco-friendly 3D printing bio-ink materials. So pretty cool. And, uh, okay, I've covered some of the... Uh, more environmentally uh, beneficial aspects of using sunflower pollen, but what does this do in terms of structural support? How does it help in terms of supporting and forming this scaffolding? So, what what? How does how does sunflower ink help here? It 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 helps because uh, this sunflower ink pollen, uh, it it's helpful because it can it can be applied. To making new scaffolding, and uh, within the realm of healthcare and everything, I mean this is this is really important because uh, you can make this these different scaffolding rigs from the sunflower pollen. It's a more flexible medium. It can be used to better fit uh, to the contours of someone's uh, body and their skin, and uh, it's also good to have biodegradable alternatives such as the sunflower pollen ink, because it helps to combat the uh, ever-growing plastic and synthetic uh, pollution problems that we face today. So how does uh, making scaffolds out of sunflower pollen make them more flexible? So uh, it's a bit complicated, but I'm just going to really, I'm going to cover really briefly about how these researchers specifically made the sunflower pollen ink and how its properties were determined. Because I've mentioned a bit about how using sunflower ink makes it a more flexible scaffolding medium, but I haven't really explained why. So I I thought I might as well explain why in case you guys are sitting there on the other line being like, Julia, what the heck are you talking about? Okay, so I thought it would be best to explain this in the words of one of the researchers who worked on this study. So I am um, loosely quoting here from uh, Professor Song, who was one of the researchers at uh, Nanyang Technological University, who had a little blurb in the uh, news report on this article. So, basically, uh, previous research efforts that were focused on developing these special kinds of bio-inks, like the ones with sunflower pollen, that were uh, efficient in uh, depositing and making printable uh, hydrogels uh, was difficult. And developing these new... Uh, these new bioinks was particularly difficult. Now, why? Mainly because uh, forming these uh, new bioink uh, scaffolds and structures actually clogged up the nozzle of the 3D printer. So that's something to consider there. That was a That was a particularly uh, difficult thing. And if the ink was able to get out of the printer it might lose its structural integrity. So you've got this ink, say... Say you're using, I don't know, um, <laughs> a bone. And you grind up the bone, and you're using the bone specifically because of how it structurally interacts with itself. And say you have this bone mixture that you make into a bio-ink. I wouldn't want this anywhere near me because it's a bone. But uh, to to get to the point, you have this, this bone bio-ink, and you want it to maintain its original structure. But say you put it through your 3D printer and out it comes from the little uh, nozzle head and you find that your structure doesn't form. And it was all due to the that little nasty nozzle's fault because it messed up your bio So So uh, this was something that these researchers actually found they were able to avoid with using sunflower pollen. They found that their sunflower pollen-based bio-ink that they were able to develop was actually mechanically strong enough to maintain its original structure without jamming up the printer. So you've got this cool new biodegradable ink that doesn't lose its structural integrity. Now, how did they go about making the sunflower pollen ink? So what they did actually is uh, they used this uh, alkaline alkaliney solution, so high pH solution. And this is actually, they mentioned... An environmentally friendly process that's apparently similar to making soap. So I don't really know how to make soap that much. I did did it once when I was like 10 where you had the soap making kit. But I don't know exactly how that works. But apparently it's similar to making soap. You take this sunflower pollen and you subject it to this high pH solution. And I guess over the span of like 6 to 12 hours, they were able to form this pollen microgel. And apparently all the pollen within this microgel were able to maintain their structural integrity. And, uh, the research article specifically on this, uh, that I'm talking about for the study today has a really nice diagram showing their process of creating this, uh, sunflower pollen microgel. And then once they were able to form this, uh, microgel, they basically spent the rest of their study, you know, analyzing it, testing its mechanical properties, structural properties, and, uh basically using it as a proof of concept for sunflower pollen as a bio ink. So as I mentioned before, uh, using sunflower pollen as a bio ink is a really, really uh, great finding because it's biodegradable and it's just, it's more environmentally friendly. So you've got this, you've got this really bright future, I'd I'd say, in terms of making this new bio ink with this uh, biodegradable sunflower pollen. So it's pretty cool. And you could potentially apply it to making uh, scaffolds for using in terms of drug delivery. And even maybe who knows, uh, you could have a prosthetic made out of sunflower pollen. That might be pretty cool. I think. (laughs) Also maybe a bit weird. But you could really say you were a plant lover then. You really could. Anyways, I thought that study was pretty cool. I mean, who knew that you could make a 3D printing, a gel ink from sunflower pollen. Like, who would have thought? Man, I mean, sunflowers already got so many uses, but that's just another one to add to the list. They're, they're just... They're just jack-of-all-trades, man. Sunflowers it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And now you guys got to learn a bit more about 3D printing, so yeah. <laughs> and hey, if you're curious, there's tons of stuff on 3D printing all over the internet. And hey, maybe there are some uh, hardcore... Machine learning engineering students here that just happen to be taking STEM or humanities degree, but you know, you know where to come now. (laughs) Come, come listen to the living world where I might occasionally talk about engineering instead of biology. But you know, hey, sunflowers are biology enough, so pretty cool. And I'll be talking on something a bit similar here in terms of the uh, biomedical applications. But this next article I mentioned. Back at the beginning that this episode was food-based. This is the big one. This is the real big food-based one. So you guys get get excited. Get excited. You'll be very excited for this article. Though it's also food-based and, again, uh, biomedical engineering-based. So get ready for that. Uh, anyways, this next study looked at using the husk from durian for making hydrogel bandages. So I will first talk about what durian is, and then what the heck a hydrogel bandage is, because that's not a term you hear every day. It really isn't. Anyways, durian. For those of you, my uh, fellow maybe westernized friends who haven't heard of durian before, it's apparently referred to as the king of fruits. So very, very fancy name. And uh, durian is actually a uh, Malay word for uh, for th- th- thorny fruit. And again, those of you who speak, uh, melee, please correct me if I mess that up, but it's a, uh, plant that is, uh, cultivated specifically in Southeast Asia. So this includes places like Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and the Philippines. So, th- uh, that's why some of you who might not have been exposed to that much of the culture from Southeast Asia might not have heard of durian. Apparently, this quote-unquote king of fruits, fruit, actually smells really bad. And that's that's its whole thing, right? Durian apparently smells horrible. So th- that's what kind of makes it a little infamous. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I haven't tried it, but those of you who might have tried it, let me know. And for those of you who are into video games, Durian is actually a collectible item in The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is a game on the Nintendo Switch that I played obsessively over lockdown. But, you know, I'm not here to talk about my uh, video game interests, but uh, it is mentioned there. So you got the king of all fruits literally everywhere in real world, all over the world and in video games and in now scientific research. So pretty cool. And I mentioned that the durian, that durian is native to Southeast Asia. And this plant specifically belongs to the genus Durio, and it belongs to the um, uh, mallow family of plants. And there are actually about 20 to 30 different species of durian, but only about 8 or so of these are actually edible. And the most important uh, durian species in terms of uh, you know international food, trade, and economics is the species uh, D. Uh, Zebithinus. So this... Uh, this plant is again native to Southeast Asia, and the tree actually has these large uh, flowers that bloom nocturnally, and they're they're white and they're apparently giant. <laughs> and uh, the the uh, fruits, the durian fruits, uh, they actually grow along the branches of the tree, so they don't grow at the end, you know, where you'd think uh, they would. They they can grow like right in the middle of a branch, because these these fruits are are massive. They're they're massive. And the, the, of course, the the branches of the durian tree need to be strong enough to carry this. But again, these flowers that bloom on the durian tree apparently uh, smell really bad. Uh, if you haven't guessed, dur- durian, the plant itself just smells really bad. But these flowers apparently smell like sour milk or something. And they're like pollinated by bats or whatever. So I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Those of you who might be uh, durian enthusiasts or botanists, again, correct me if I am messing this up here, but pretty cool uh, to start. And I mentioned that uh, specifically the uh, uh, Durio uh, zivithinus species is of particular interest uh, economically. And this is because it's the only species of durian that's traded internationally. So if you go to say a specialty fruit store in uh oh, I don't know uh London they'll be have they might have durian and it will probably be uh durio zibethinus so just to point that out for you guys there and durian is actually related uh to other large fruits such as the jackfruit and the breadfruit and actually side note when i was living in florida i lived in florida about 10 years ago now for a good 2 or 3 years As my dad was in the military and we moved a bunch. But in our backyard, we had all these fruit trees. All these citrus trees. All these fruit trees. And one of the trees we had in our backyard actually was growing jackfruit. So those are also very large fruits. They're massive. And apparently they're really sticky. And I never tried one because they freaked me out. Because they were spiky. But yeah, a little personal tie in there. A little relationship there for you guys. Any of you who... Might have not seen a durian, you can look up a jackfruit and, you know, they're somewhat similar. Now, I mentioned a bit earlier on that durian fruits are massive. Now, how massive? How big are these fruits, you might be wondering? Well, they're apparently the size of an American football. So for those of you here who don't really have any idea about football, an American football is, like, you know, about the size of your forearm... And it's got this little white, crissy crossy hatch mark thing over it, and you throw it around. So, (laughs) the durian fruit's about that size, and it weighs around four kilograms. And they can be about uh, six to eight inches wide. And these fruits uh, are actually covered in these spiky thorns, and they, they range from like this greenish to like a yellowish color. And the fruit itself is actually divided up into five separate compartments. And each of these compartments represents uh, these five carpels, which are areas where the fruit develops when it's growing in the natural setting and on the tree. So pretty interesting. And a characteristic as well of durian that you might have guessed is it's a really heavy fruit. So when this fruit grows and develops and over time it becomes ripe, These durian fruits can actually drop off the tree and fall and split open. And they actually split open along five preformed lines. And these lines actually follow the five compartments that the durian fruit is divided into. Now, I mentioned that these durian fruits smell really horrible. So you might be wondering how, how horrible. Well, from what I've read, they apparently can smell like a mixture of sweat, feces, unwashed socks, or even, you know, rotten garlic. And I'm like, I wouldn't want to smell any of those things at all. Like, that just sounds so bad. Like, even alone, just smelling someone's sweat is just, like, gross. Even if it's yourself, it's just kind of gross. But, like, you mix together all four of those things. Oh, heck no. (laughs) So, yeah, that's apparently... Uh, one interpretation of what durian smells like. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I don't know if I'd want to be the one who goes down and is like, oh, I want to go smell durian right now. And then you walk back and you just smell absolutely rancid. (laughs) But yeah, again, goes to show I haven't actually done that. But again, if any of you have, I mean, of course you got to let me know, like, how bad is it? Does durian really smell that horrible? Or am I just, you know, exaggerating? I don't know. You guys gotta let me know. Anyways, uh, durian, being a fruit, has seeds. And these seeds are actually pretty sizable. So, a bit of a topic change here, but you can actually eat the seeds of durian if they're roasted. And they're apparently, I found, about the same size as like a chestnut seed. Of course, I haven't seen a chestnut tree because (laughs) I don't go around uh, looking at a bunch of trees and actually figuring out what kind of tree they are. But The durian seeds are, like, same size as chestnut seed. I'm like, okay, cool. And uh, you can actually make the durian seed and the fruit into candy. So that's what they do uh, in some places in Southeast Asia is they'll make candy out of durian. So it's hilarious because the plant stinks. But it apparently tastes good. Like, I've read that it tastes kind of like a custard. But then you're eating the sweet custard. And then while you're eating the custard, it just smells horrible. I'm like... I'm like, okay, okay, I feel like that's an acquired taste, but, you know, that, that's fine, too. That's fine, too, man. And apparently, durian smells so bad that in Singapore, on their rapid mass transit system, there's a sign actually banning durian from being brought on the train. So if you have durian, don't bring it on the train, because they might kick you off because it smells so horrible. They really know. They really know. So, yeah, be careful if you have Durian. Don't try to smuggle it. People will be able to smell it. Apparently, you can smell it from a really ways, a really long ways away, so be aware of that, too. And uh, if you're curious what other animals actually eat durian, it's not just people. We're, we're not the only crazy ones that eat this crazy, rancid, giant mega fruit. Uh, there's actually other animals that eat it, too. So, of course, they're native to Southeast Asia, but I found... Other animals that eat durian also include orangutans, uh, tapirs, and pygmy elephants, which is pretty sick. So, you know, we're not the only crazy ones that eat durian, which apparently smells horrible but tastes good. So, yeah, you're not alone. If you like durian, you're not alone. You can hang out, too, with orangutans and tapirs and pygmy elephants, and you guys can all sit around in a fun circle and just enjoy the fact that you love durian so, so much. Okay, I'll get on with it. I'll get on with it. (laughs) Anyways, back to back back on point here. Uh, the study I mentioned that I'll be talking about, relating to durian, uh, used their husks to make this hydrogel bandage. So this study had researchers just from uh, Nanyang Technological University this time, and it was published. Uh, it's a tad bit old now, but just just over a year ago, uh, back on uh, January twelfth of last year, and. Uh, why is the study relevant? So uh, hydrogel bandage is a bandage. And bandages, or I guess, what are, they, what are they called here? What are they called here? Plasters, I think. They're called plasters. Yeah, I think. I'm still getting there with my UK terminology here. But bandages, uh, primarily, there aren't that many options that use you know, biodegradable compounds. Most of them use different synthetic compounds to make up the bandage. And they also might have antimicrobial elements. And these uh, commonly are different types of metals. So this can include copper or silver or a bunch of different metals that, you know, I just can't think of right now, but they're used as well for antimicrobial properties. And what's the big deal here with these synthetic compounds and these antimicrobials? The big deal here is that these components are, number one, expensive. Number two, they have a larger biological footprint. And they don't degrade as quickly. So you've got these bandages, which of course exist, but they're kind of pricey. And they use these, pr- these more like precious metals and whatever to, to, to employ this antimicrobial effect. So you have to take that in mind to start. To make this study a bit more relevant, you've got the current solution, which is a typical bandage, which doesn't degrade as well and is expensive. And, you know, there's got to be better options out there. There's got to be. So that's what these researchers did. They were like, okay, we're going to find a better option than synthetically produced uh, bandages with metal-based antimicrobial properties. So that's what these researchers did here in Singapore. So they were like, okay, durian. Now, I have no idea why they decided to use durian, but apparently they, you know, they just wanted to. I was like, I was like okay, fine, fine. Uh, though one of the reasons uh, I think that was also a big one is... Uh, durian husks are actually a waste product within the food industry because you can only really, as I mentioned, eat the seeds or the fleshy part of durian. So I guess that makes sense in a way. So what these researchers did is they obtained all these durian husks and they ground them up and they were able to actually extract pretty relatively high quality uh, cellulose from these durians. And cellulose is a uh, sugar-specific to plants that is the main component of fiber. So if you eat a bunch of plants uh, high in fiber, anything high in fiber, that is typically cellulose, which is a sugar our bodies cannot break down. So little side note fact for you guys there. And these researchers, they took the durian, they ground it up, they broke it down, they got the cellulose extracted from it, relatively high quality, if I might add. And then they took this cellulose and they combined it with glycerol, Glycerol, sorry. And glycerol is actually a waste product of the biodiesel and the soap industry. So, interesting point there. And they were able to take this cellulose and this glycerol, and they combined it to make this soft kind of gel. And this was this is similar somewhat in texture to, like, a sheet of silicon, which, again, I don't know exactly what a sheet of silicon looks like just by itself but you know it's kind of similar it's got that like stretchy smooth kind of feeling so they were able to make this soft gel like silicon sheet thing and they took it and they cut it into these like bandage shapes I guess to try and test if it was a good bandage and uh, that seemed to work so they were like okay uh, now we're going to see if we can apply some antimicrobial properties to it now too And what they did is they used a uh, natural uh, antimicrobial product, actually, which I didn't know exists, but it's this compound called a phenolic. And this they were able to obtain from baker's yeasts. So Saccharomyces cerevisiae, for you science nerds. They mention it all the time in our lectures. But, you know, here's another cool application of baker's yeast. Not just for making wine, not just for making beer, but for making naturally produced antimicrobials. And this, uh, these phenolics are actually uh, deadly to bacteria. So these researchers were like, okay, we've got a natural antimicrobial, and they took that uh, phenolic, they mixed it with their uh, gel-like silicon sheet uh, durian and a glycerol bandage to make an antimicrobial stretchy biodegradable bandage. So this, was, this is the concept of a hydrogel bandage now that's a hydrogel bandage but what does it do exactly what's the benefit of this you know watery bandage because that's what i think of when i hear hydrogel is i think ooh, it's gel but it's wet so it has water (laughs) so how does the how do these hydrogel bandages compare to typical ones so these are uh, these are actually uh non-toxic apparently uh, in in the context of if you consider a hydrogel bandage, the durian cellulose mixed with the glycerol mixed with the phenolics. Of course, there might be other definitions out there, but this was just the one that I found mentioned in the study. <laughs> and uh, so these hydrogels, they their benefit, their primary benefit is they're able to rehydrate the wound bed. So how does having a hydrated wound bed where, say, you cut yourself and you bled all over the place and you mopped up all your blood and now you have to put a bandage on it. How does having a hydrated wound bed help you? How does that help your body to heal? So this actually facilitates something called autolytic debridement. And this is where your body uses the the enzymes within it and the natural fluids within your body to actually soften the uh, dead and necrotic tissue and remove it. So this is this autolytic debridement. And having a hydrated area around your wound helps with this so you're helping your body to send in enzymes that speed up reactions and break down different compounds and in this case they're just breaking down the dead tissues that are sitting around (laughs) around your wound so pretty cool and apparently these hydrogel bandages actually are able to help improve the healing rate better than typical conventional bandages And I didn't know that because you think, oh, this cool little hydro bandage, all it probably does is just, you know, give you better skin and you stick it over your injury once it's healed just because you want it to be, I don't know, look better and not just like a dry, scabby scab. No, no, they apparently help with healing. They help with that autolytic debridement, which is again, something I have never heard of until today, but pretty cool, pretty cool. Now, I also mentioned that these, uh, newly developed durian hydrogel bandages were coated with this natural antibiotic, these phenolics. So what are these phenolics? What do they do exactly? So apparently phenolics, again, are antimicrobial and specifically they help to prevent the growth of harmful bacteria strains. So the one specifically mentioned in this study that the phenolics were able to uh, inhibit were the growth of E. coli, and there are pathogenic strains of E. coli, the bad ones, the, the real bad ones. And also Staphylococcus aureus, aka Staph, aka something we've heard of but never want. <laughs> we don't want either of those infections, pathogenic E. coli or Staph. Both of them, just no, not fun. They're not fun. <laughs> so that's some of the benefits of these phenolics. And these researchers actually were able to study this antimicrobial effect of the phenolics so how did they do this exactly so they used animal skin which is of course a, uh, a sim- similar to human skin because we ourselves as well are animals and uh, they applied their newly produced super fancy silicon like hydrogel bandages with the phenolics onto the animal skin for two days And as a proof of concept, they tested this and found that there was actually some antibacterial protection. So pretty cool, pretty cool. And uh, outside of the realm of health, health care and uh, prevention of disease, another benefit of these hydrogel bandages are actually, uh, firstly, In the realm of wearable electronics. So, ooh, wearable electronics, super fancy. You thought it was just about making shirts with lights in them. No. You could make a hydrogel bandage with lights in it. And, I don't know, wires? I'm not entirely sure how wearable electronics work. I just, I've seen a few videos for them, though, and they look pretty cool. But, again, I'm not doing electrical engineering. I'm not really doing design though I don't know if I'd relate design to wearable electronics but you know I'm not in that field but that'd be pretty cool you got this uh hydrogel that can be either used to help you heal help your body heal injuries or you can wear it around like a really cool like flex (laughs) and and just you know be that cool person who's like Ooh, check out my new badge! It's a hydrogel with electronics, and you wear it around, and you're like the super cool person. Anyways, that was a bit of a tangent, but (laughs) pretty cool uh, in that regard. Now, there's also other applications that I found mentioned uh, with hydrogels. So this is also something mentioned uh, within at the end, more towards the end of this uh, research paper. So specifically. What they called the a health monitoring ban. So, uh, pretty self-explanatory here. But uh, say you're a uh, 70-year-old Singaporean, right? No, no matter the gender, no one cares about the, your gender or anything. But you're 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 70 and you're in Singapore, and it's, for some reason, uh, you're you're just you're just you're you're living your life often in, in in your home in Singapore, and you just happen to live out in more of a rural area, and uh say you're uh say you have a um, a partner or whatever and one of you gets sick. Or you know, both of you get sick, both of you get get really, really sick and uh you you can't you can't go into town to get to get a doctor. Like that that's a big issue. And especially if you're in say again, this analogy of rural Singapore and maybe you don't have access to a telephone or the internet or uh you don't have any younger Uh, relatives nearby that could drive you into town to hospital so this is where a health monitoring band might come in because uh you wear this band around and if something bad happens to you of course it's like all those ads uh where you hit the button and then it calls for help though i don't know how well that would work if you're in rural singapore and you have no internet but the idea is still the same (laughs) uh you're 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 older or even if you're younger and say something something really bad happens to you and you you just you need help. So you, you got you wear around this health monitoring band that you can use to call out for help and, and get help if you're in that kind of situation. So how do hydrogels play into this? So you have the hydrogel, which again, as we know now, is this silicon like a smooth bandagey structure. And in this instance it's made of durian. So funny thing You've got this fancy hydrogel bandage. You're this local Singaporean again because it's a it's a good analogy. And instead of uh you know being really sick and then not being able to contact anyone, you have this say uh, two inch by two inch patch on your arm, and it's hooked up to say some electronics. So you got wearable electronics in there, and you're you're over on the ground, off in pain because say say. Say say you had a you had a stroke. I don't know how awake you'd be after a stroke, but some something on that level of scale where you're just really really debilitated and you 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 just you can't you can't you can't go anywhere. You you can't contact anyone. So you got this health monitoring band with this durian, so super helpful there. And hey, I mean, who knows? You could just like tap tap your finger on your arm with your little uh, hydrogel electronics patch, and it could go and call for it. A hospital or an ambulance. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. And these, uh, these researchers, these Singaporean researchers that worked on this study with the durian hydrogel actually worked on something similar with the cellulose obtained from soybeans. So this uh, this uh, substance that they got was obtained specifically from soybean waste that's referred to as okra, okara, sorry, okara. Not okra. It's not okra. Okra. <laughs> uh, it's Ocara. And these researchers, uh, in a similar study to this one with durian, they were able to obtain the cellulose from this waste product pulp. And they actually, in 2019, were able to design a proof of concept for these biodegradable electronics. So I'll actually link the paper here if you guys are interested in my whole little tangent on uh, wearable electronics and hydrogels. But I think that's pretty cool that you've got these Researchers that put in all this work and they found that you could have wearable electronics made out of soybeans. But even better, you take the smelly plant durian and, okay, you eat all the seeds and all the pulp, but you have all these husks left. And these researchers were able to take the husks, break them down, extract cellulose of all things, like, literally cellulose, crazy, simplest, like, One of the simplest sugars, you mix it with literally glycerol, you make the hydrogel bandage, which, as I've mentioned a billion times now, is a silicon-like structure that acts as a bandage. You take these two things, you mix them together, and you get a bandage. And to add on top of it, a biodegradable antimicrobial, like the phenolics, man. Like, that's just nuts. Like, how many other of these kinds of biodegradable things are you going to find in nature? These studies that I talked about tonight really just show the wide range of what we don't know that can be taken from natural living things like plants, man. I've really just talked about plants and food all night tonight and see how much you guys have learned I mean literally, who knew that you could make a bio ink from a sunflower and a bandage from durian like literally the sunflower, which is like so pure and, and you see pictures of them on postcards in like Tuscany and they're all like pretty but no, they're not just pretty and they're not just for food and sunflower butter, they're for, for 3D printing, they're for engineering, they're for biomedical research. it's it's like insane. it's crazy. I just I don't understand. And again, you also got durian, which, as I mentioned a ton tonight, smells horrible, but is apparently really good as a food. And you think, oh, that's all it's used for. And then you just, you know, get rid of it. And it just sits in your yard and stinks up your yard for ages and ages. No, no, you can make a bandage from it. Like, what the heck, man? It's literally insane. Like this, I don't know, just maybe I'm just in a, I'm just in a mood tonight where I just think everything's crazy, but (laughs) It it really is. It really is. Yeah. So, uh, hope you guys, uh, didn't mind my little, my little rant there on the, the wide wonders of plants and science and whatever, but I just, I just think it's really cool. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode of the living world. I actually meant to cover three articles this evening, but you know, clearly I only covered two at that. That's just how it happened, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the research from uh, Nanyang Technological University this evening. And again, if any of you had vis- have visited there, I mean, hit me up. That'd be great to hear about it. And I wish you all uh, the best with all your week nine deadlines. And for those of you who might have a presentation coming up, you can do it. I believe in you. Practice. You'll get there. We'll all get there someday. Uh, anyways, <laughs> hope you guys all have a good evening. And I will see you all next week for the next episode of Living World, where, you know, hopefully I won't just talk about plants the whole time. I, I might talk about, <laughs> you know, um, maybe trees, though actually trees are plants, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, anyways, I hope you guys all have a good rest of your evenings and have a nice night.